All right. Andy Haynes is my guest today. Very funny comedian who's been on Conan, James Corden, Comedy Central, Adam Ruins Everything, Roast Battle, a bunch of other stuff. Uh, he was nice enough to do my podcast today. And we talk about the Seattle comedy scene where he started navigating the woke culture with comedy, how he found sobriety or mutual respect for comedian Fahim Anwar and so much more. The time flew right by. So check it out. Yeah, it's like Mike Birbiglia sent this to my wife to do a podcast once, which is very bizarre to just send an entire microphone because we have microphones too. But I just thought I'd try it because then I don't have to get out the Zoom and all that. So, wait, does, so is your wife a comedian too? She is. Yeah, my wife's Rosebud Baker. Okay, hmm. she's did, uh, uh, she's she's doing great. She's like an SNL writer, things like that. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't know that. I, I thought I did my research and uh, I found something. No, new. you're all good. I prefer yeah. people not to know that. It makes me seem better. <laughs> yeah. So, well, you know, things are going pretty good for you. Can we, can we say, can I tell my audience why you had to reschedule? That's kind of exciting. Oh yeah. I mean, so I wasn't, I, I wasn't on the fest, but I got like invited to be there all day. I didn't perform. There was kind of like a big hang. Um, and like, they were like making, kind of like sketches and content and stuff. And um, like at like 11 a.m., my wife, who's on the festival, she's doing the festival, was like, do you want to come? Bert wanted to know if you wanted to come hang out. And I was like, yeah. So, so. this is uh, Bert Kreischer's, uh, this is a show he does or what is it? It's called Fully Loaded. It's actually coming to your guys's. It's the last date is at the Gorge. So it's like, it's oh, okay. uh all around the country and like little like last night was at forest hills the night tonight is in baltimore it kind of goes like to a bunch of cities and they either do like a small arena or a like there's a lot of like um minor league baseball stadiums they're almost all outdoors though so oh, okay. it's kind of like a like a two or three hour comedy festival Oh, okay. Yeah. That would be fun. Yeah. It'd be fun to do the gorge. I'm actually in um, Scottsdale now, but I'm originally from Seattle. Same as you. Are you in, you must be in LA then or I'm in New York, New York. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm East coast now. Okay. Yeah. Cause I thought wait, at one point were you in San Francisco or are you in California somewhere? Right. Yeah. I lived in LA for six years. I moved, um, well, I started comedy in Seattle and then I pretty quickly after like nine months, I'd graduated from, I wasn't even in Seattle. I was in Bellingham and then I graduated right. and, uh, moved to Washington DC, did that for a couple of years. And then I did New York. Then I moved to LA and about six years after moving to LA, I decided I like New York better. Okay. Nice. Yeah. So tell me about, um, when you were in, uh, when you were going to Western, I'm assuming that's where you were, right? If you're in Bellingham. Yeah. So yeah. you went to Western and then you, you were doing stand-up in Seattle. Talk about the Seattle comedy scene then. Like who are the, cause it was, that was like Fahim was there, Jeff Dye, those guys, or who else was there around? Yeah. I mean, Fahim and I overlapped very briefly in Seattle. He'd started a couple years before me and um, I saw him a couple times and then he moved to LA and he was like a engineer at Boeing and then decided to go full-time and stand-up. Jeff and me started pretty close to each other. And when I moved to Washington, D.C., I came back and Jeff was like 
kind of a name around the area. I mean, he was like doing pretty well for himself. Um, there was a couple other people that popped up. I mean, I had introduced Rory Scoville to everybody in Seattle. So he started coming out there quite a bit. And his kind of creative partner that he works a lot with is a guy from Spokane that I met in Seattle named Scott Moran. And they still do everything together. Um, all of Rory's specials has been with Scott. And Scott did stand up at the time, but now he kind of just focuses on the production directing kind of stuff. Um, when I when I came back to when I started, it was basically all kind of road dogs. It was like kind of all guys doing like local gigs or not local gigs, but it, there wasn't anybody doing kind of um, good. <laughs> the comedy was good, but they weren't doing good gigs. It was it was pretty bleak. You know, it was like you would like you were just trying to get enough time together so that you could go to like Wenatchee or Billings, Montana or something like that. That was like <laughs> kind of the the vibe there. Oh, even and like then, headlining giggles or uh comedy underground. That's kind of a good oh, it was like a weekend, right? Yeah, that was kind of reserved for there was a bunch of road dogs that would come through there, like kind of guys that were uh, a lot of bad comics, uh, you know, uh, and some good <laughs> comics, but there was a lot of bad comics. It was kind of a bad place. It was kind of a bad scene to start in just because you didn't really have something to aspire to. Like occasionally a Patton Oswalt would come through and he would play like a theater or like a small black box, or you would have like Doug Stanhope would come through or, um, you know, like one of the big theater comics would come through like the Paramount and the more. Um, but there wasn't like a lot of like, you know, now if you do comedy, if you start, you can listen to like literally hundreds of hours of podcasts on how to carry yourself, what you need to have prepared, how to write a joke how to network, all that stuff. There was none of that. It was just like, go to a comedy club, do the open mic, do it till somebody asks you to do another show. Um, and then kind of like figured out from there. There wasn't even podcast at that time. Um, it was just because I started in 2005. Um, so how long did it take you to get from like doing the open mics to like you actually getting to, what would you, the first thing is be like uh, hosting an open mic or something or being a feature or something. I, I want to say the first thing I got was like kind of a bar show. Um, there was like around that time, this, there was this thing called the alt scene in comedy. So it was like, that was like comics for the first time deciding like not to do comedy clubs and they're going to go do like rock clubs mm -hmm. or kind of like small music venues. And that was like Patton Oswalt came out of that. Zach Galifianakis, Eugene Merman, um, just like, you know, kind of not necessarily oddball, but just like comics deciding they didn't really want to go this traditional route that had been uh, laid out for them. And so they like started doing all of these smaller venues or or bigger venues, but it was like not going through a comedy club. You weren't doing like a weekend. Right. Well, it's like that. Show, then, I'm sure you saw uh, your buddy Pete Holmes, his show where they, they show that. And I, I didn't know about the alt thing until I saw that show. And I was like, Oh, this is weird. They're doing like comedy in these like underground like basements and people's like garages and stuff. I was like, this is weird, like backyards. And yeah, yeah. I mean, it got even crazier during the pandemic. I think sure. people were like performing. I, I still see people that are performing outdoors. Outdoors is not really a good place for comedy because you kind of want you want laughter to bounce around a room. You don't really right. want to have it float into the ether. Um, 
but anyways, yeah, I, my first kind of thing was I got like, maybe like a rock show, like a, not like a rock show, like an alt show, um, at a bar and, um, I got a good taste of it, but then I went out to visit my dad in Washington, DC and there was like a really good comedy club, the DC improv. It's one of the best clubs in the country. And then on top of that, there was a lot of people my age who kind of had a better understanding of like how to do it. You know, like you go to New York, you do these certain shows, you meet these certain people, you put together this kind of like portfolio, you try to get Montreal, you try to get representation. And we were all about 25 to 30. And it just like, it was so much more fun than going to like, I, I love the comedy underground in Seattle, RIP, it's closed, but um, it was very, it was a lot of old dudes and there, were a, there was a lot of bitterness, you know, mm. there wasn't a lot of, there was like a, I went down to LA once and uh, you know, somebody asked me, um, you know, like what my, what my best joke was. And I told him to fuck off and you're just like, all right, well, that's, <laughs> that's not very, that doesn't help me. So I very quickly yeah. moved to, not very to inspirational. Washington. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I'm trying to think. I think there was more people that kind of came out of Seattle, but um, like Hari Kondabolu had been around and um, trying to think of some other folks. It's actually, I, I would say that Seattle's doing the best that it's done in a long time now. There's a couple really good comedy clubs. There's some really good local comics that aren't going anywhere. I mean, that's the problem with any smaller scene is what happens is you get good and you are like well i should go to la or new york or wherever you know mm -hmm. and the nice thing about like a scene when people stick around is it it grows and it kind of matures and then you know more people come from around the country you know like industry and things like that so um it's it's in pretty good shape now probably the best that i've seen it since like right around the 2006, 2007, there was a really good alt scene and that kind of blew up after, you know, a couple of years. Um, and then there, there's always been this kind of infighting with the comedy clubs there. Like if you play this club, you aren't loyal to this club and don't, you know, cross lines and all this stuff like that. And um, that doesn't really seem to be a problem anymore. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I think they had, I heard some of that down here in Phoenix. There's similar kind of things. Like this guy said, like, if you play this club, then you can't play the other one. And I always thought that was so stupid. That, uh, yeah. I mean, we have like four or five comedy clubs here. I don't, have you ever come to Phoenix and do shows? Yeah, I, I have. I've had some like, um, <clears throat> I, I did a weekend at a club that I don't think is there anymore in Scottsdale. It's oh, um, the spot comedy spot. No, it was another one. It was oh. like, uh, it, I think it was on Bar Rescue, actually. It was like on oh, an yeah, episode yeah. of Bar Rescue. Stand Up Scottsdale or something. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually had a blast there. The owner was like a complete character, but he took really good care of me. And oh. I had a really fun week. But I don't think the club lasted. And then kind of what's left is I think there's like a house of comedy, a couple improvs. Um, there's another place called maybe CB Live. Copper CB Blues. Live, yeah. Then there's Stir Crazy on the west side. That's a little bit smaller, and um, you could definitely headline that one easily. Yeah, I I, I played CB Live. I opened for Natasha Legero there, and it oh, was nice. really fun. But it was like, um, you know, you're not really like in the city at all. You're kind of out in the strip yeah. mall. 
almost yeah. all of my experiences in Phoenix or Scottsdale are just like being on the periphery of the city. I don't think I've ever been in the city of Phoenix. Oh, nobody is. Yeah. Ever, Cause everything, it's so spread out here. It's not like Seattle where it's all, you know, or like New York, everything's so congested. Everything here is just spread out. There's just tons of land. So yeah. Everybody it's hot as balls in the summer. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, some people think it's hot in like March. They feel like it's like too much. So <laughs> it just depends my, on your preference. My wife is going to be there in like a month. I think she's going to be at the Tempe Improv, which I think Tempe is part of Phoenix, right? Uh, Tempe. Yeah. It's like South of Fe- It's like, so there's Phoenix and then there's Tempe and then there's Scottsdale and then there's Glendale. That's where like the Cardinal stadium is and the stir crazy comedy club. That whole yeah. thing. It's a, a used to be where the coyotes, the hockey team was too. And they're moving. So yeah, everything's kind of all over the place. So it's kind of funny. Like when they had the super bowl here, cause the super bowls in Glendale, but then like the nightlife's in Scottsdale and then Phoenix, like the downtown is, you know, it's kind of like nothing really other than they do have, uh, the one comedy stand up live there. Is I, um, I had a, a very like funny Scottsdale, like every single woman that I came across, I was married at the time too. I had a different life. And, um, so I wasn't like, you know, intermingling with any, with any ladies, but like every single girl that I interacted with in Scottsdale was like platinum blonde, uh, deeply tanned <laughs> Sounds and right. wanted nothing to do with me because I uh, <laughs> didn't play golf and oh. could not uh, like buy them anything. I don't know. But I'm did sure they think the- that you played golf? Because you always joke. You're like, I look like the Senator's uh, nephew or something or like the 80s. I think they maybe, they kind of came in thinking there might be some, some, some money there, you know, like <laughs> there might've been a waitress or two that was like, oh, okay, this guy looks, you know, like he might be part of the pedigree. And then um, very quickly, you know, when I was like, uh, how much is the extra, <laughs> how much are, are, if I add sweet potato fries, how much is that? And they were like, all right, this guy's definitely not. Yeah. 50 cents extra. Ooh. Yeah, I don't know. I'll pass on that. Yeah. I'll just do the regular. Yeah. My first, like my first 10 years of comedy, maybe 10 years. Yeah. I think it was about my first 10 years. I was so broke. You know, it was like, everything was like, so just hoping to break even on a weekend you know you'd fly somewhere the airline ticket would be about half the price of what you were going to get paid that weekend and then you know like you couldn't take a cab because then that was like you know that was like a hundred dollars if you went both ways to the airport because you know there's never like an airport that's convenient i remember this one time i was in like calgary alberta and I had a flight in the morning and I was like, I can't spend the $40 on the cab. I'm just too broke. You know, I was just always broke living in New York being kind of a, uh, I don't know what you would call it. Uh, like a longshoreman. I, what do you call it? Like, uh, I just, all I did was feature on the road and, um, which is like not the headliner. It's like okay. the middle act. So you don't get paid as much. And I took a bus at like four in the morning that connected to like a light rail. And then it like, I got to the end of the light rail to take another bus to the airport. And that bus like didn't start for like another two hours. And so I just walked, you know, like four miles with all my luggage to the, to the airport. 
And I just was like, it was worth it. I saved $40 and I, it was just not worth it at all. It was such a, <laughs> it was such a bleak existence. I was like Damn. making top ramen in my uh, instant coffee maker and all that, you know, like it was just, yeah, no you talk about that in your stand up about like these stories about being broke and stuff. It's good material. So what happens though when you start getting a little bit more money? I mean, I'm assuming you're doing better now. Do you have to reflect back on those times when you were poor or do you talk about like successful guy problems or <laughs> I mean, well, you're not rich or anything now, I'm sure, but you're doing pretty no, well. I'm not rich, uh, but I've been rich ish, like not rich and like I can you know, buy a second home type of thing. But, you know, like I've written for TV and had lots of money there or I've acted in a few things and that made a lot of money. But um, I've never had like, you know, money to put away to, you know, give to a money manager to deal with. I've never had that kind of money. And uh, the, the thing I would say is that most successful comics, like it's changed a lot. Right now we're like in a crazy time where, I have multiple friends doing comedy, making millions of dollars. Um, and those are like, you know, Shane Gillis's, Mark Norman, Sam Morrill's, like those guys are selling out a different theater every night. But um, if you're just like headlining and you're, you know, you're, uh, you're able to headline, you're a good comic, but you're not necessarily going to sell out every venue you're in. You, you make about as much as like a person that works at a tech job entry level. So it's like, it's kind of interesting, you know, you like, you're just trying to get to that level of success that would, that a, that a basic responsible job would pay, you You know? And it took you like I, 10 years to get there. Yeah. But I also was like a complete fuck up, you know, like I, most <laughs> no, comics you're a, now, you're a college graduate. I mean, yeah, but I was like a pothead. I just smoked weed all day. I, you know, I tried to sleep with everybody that got within like five feet of me. I was just like, I was all over the place. And so I really, I got sober in 2014 and I really feel like that was starting over because that was like, I had, I'd been an alcoholic. I'm all, you know, I'm always going to be an alcoholic, but I'd been an active alcoholic until about 2010. So my first six years of comedy, I was kind of a disaster in another way. And then I smoked pot all day, every day for about four years. So my first 10 years, I did a lot of stuff, but it was kind of all happenstance and luck you know it was like hard work hard work mixed with showing up right hmm. but any of that kind of like savvy and things like that i didn't i didn't have any of that it was just like i did comedy as much as i could and i hung out with the right people and the right things came to me but i didn't know how to leverage any of that into the next thing because now it's like you get a special and off of that special people kind of see what kind of persona you are and you try to write a TV show or some other thing. And then the, you, you, you maybe develop along those lines. And then you kind of like, that's a more traditional Hollywood way. And then the other way, which is like the new way now, which is like, you start a podcast, your podcast gets pretty popular. You do a lot of social media marketing of yourself and whatever you're making or doing, and then you can sell out venues. But that seems to also lean towards like a very specific audience which is like young and male and not necessarily conservative but definitely not liberal you know just like the kind of comedy i think people are so sick of woke and so sick of um kind of the preciousness that came out of the pandemic that i think if you can kind of 
provide a place where you're just going to talk, speak your mind. I think that that's really appealing to, to especially young guys now, you know? Yeah. Well, cause you, I mean, some of your comedy, I mean, you're obviously more liberal, but you kind of do make fun of the let you even say you're like, I'm a liberal, but I hate it. Or so like you have a joke about that. Like you kind of, you kind of touch on that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's exhausting to try to <laughs> care about everybody's feelings. Right. Especially when you're trying to be funny. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's gotta be hard to be a comedian into, it seems like it's gotten a little less crazy where it's like, there was a time where it felt like everything you said, it was like, people were trying to cancel you. But now it seems like with Chappelle just saying, I don't give a fuck. And there's a lot of people like that. And then they realize like, Oh, he could say what he wants and nobody's, he's still going to be there. He's not technically canceled. So I think a lot of people said, well, I can say what I want then. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I think that people, I, I think the one, the biggest thing about it was that it was a lot of people making a big to do out of something that wasn't necessarily like their thing to be upset about, you know, mm -hmm. it was kind of like this entire group of people kind of watchdogging everything. And, you know, obviously there was like some very valid, uh, things that came out of the me too movement, you know, like there was like predatory behavior and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, it was like a lot of people being like, well, this is upsetting because this is offensive. And it was like, but it's not offending. Like, why are you offended? You're not Asian American or you're not special needs. You don't have a lot of like people like you're getting offended on behalf of a group that you're not a part of, or you're speaking for a larger group that maybe you are a part of, but they don't agree with you. And also, I think at the end of the day, people just wanted to laugh. I mean, it was like a really exhausting, I think Trump years were really exhausting. I think the pandemic was really exhausting. And people just, people just want to laugh. They're not really like as precious as they were. They're kind of like, let's just go out, have a good time. I know this guy's joking. Like if I make a joke about a certain group, I don't mean that you should go and genocide them. <laughs> you know, like, it's like, wow, what a novel. Yeah. Because it's, comedy it's a joke like i think that was something i read that some of the millennials were offended by seinfeld which is just mind-boggling to me i was like what this show is like one of the most safest and really progressive at the time type of shows so the fact that people would be offended by that is like mind-boggling to me but yeah i mean i think like i'm like all for uh the representation thing like i want to see different stories i want to see different people but at a certain point, there's also like you have to like acknowledge the demographic that is like, you know, ingesting what you do. Right. Like, I, I think America's like 75 or 65 percent like white people. And a lot of them don't live in cities and a lot of them don't read The New York Times. And a lot of them are men and a lot of them maybe aren't conservative, but they have certain, you know, or maybe they just don't give a shit. And that's like the thing. It's like, I think, I think a lot of it's felt spoon fed too, which it was like, you know, cause like all these shows and, and industry people, they live in like, they live in like a New York or in LA. And then they're making these decisions based off of like their friend group and what they're seeing around them. When it's like, I don't half the people that, are going to watch this show or half the people that are going to listen to this thing or whatever are going to be in Wichita or Kansas or Charlotte or San Antonio, you know, it's like, and they don't give a shit about, you know, like what's happening in Manhattan, you know? 
No, absolutely. It, I feel like a lot of things, especially like major network TV shows like uh, on NBC and stuff like that, like you see most of the good shows now are on these like obscure cable things and not on NBC and Fox and ABC. Like what what's the last sitcom that you watch from like ABC or NBC? Like there there really isn't that many. Most of them bomb. No, I think that format's like pretty dead. It just feels so inauthentic. And I mean, mm-hmm. like if you look at it, the biggest show in the country, the number one show in the country is Yellowstone, which is about a Montana rancher. And have it's you like, watched that? Oh yeah. Do you like it? Yeah. I love Kevin Costner. And I, you know, I think a lot of it's like melodramatic and kind of, you know, over the top, but it's like, it's fun to watch cowboys like shoot at each other and, you know, do all that fucking <laughs> cowboy shit. Yeah. There, there's also some really funny things. There's like, there's a scene where, it's like in the first or second season where this like tour bus of Chinese uh, tourists like walk onto uh, Kevin Costner's land and they're like taking pictures. I think of a bear. It might be a bear or a moose, or, but they're just like standing on a field kind of like looking at this animal. And Kevin Costner like storms out and he's like, you can't be here. This is America, you know, and it's just like so funny because it's just like <laughs> when you think about it, it's like. It's kind of like that shit would never fly anymore in general, but they got away with it because it's like that show just can't be stopped. And that's also the funny thing about it is like no matter how woke these networks get, I'm not like a huge fan of the term woke, but like no matter how like much they try, they're still like capitalists. And they're like, if a show goes, they're going to, you know, they're going to play it still. Right. If there was like a make money, there was. That's why there's a sitcom right now about like, do you really think that some of these businesses care about these quote unquote marginalized groups or whatever? It's like, no, I feel like it's, they just want to make money off of it. Oh, look, we, we care about uh, this. We care about this group this month and this on that month. It's like, really? Or are you just trying to make money? Cause that's what it looks like to me. I think I saw like a, uh, a video the other day of like a pride March and it was like, um, like all the LGBT workers of Northrop Grumman, which is like, the um company that makes like missiles <laughs> they make like fighter jets and missiles yeah, and yeah. shit like that like they're just like a war company you know they're not like no i think there's a so- meme there's a meme like that that has a missile and it has like the pride flag on the missile or something like yeah i think that that was like what from, i saw I was they like they made the meme real like it yes, was really like yes it was the it was the company like supporting their LGBT like employees, but it's like, this is an awful company. Like, do you really want them to endorse? Like, what do you, where are we at now? Like we've like the, the, the chicken is ate the egg or whatever, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. That's, that's interesting. It's interesting when you talk to people, like I do a lot of these podcasts and a lot of the people I talk to are liberal and they, they kind of feel the same way you are. Like some of the stuff has gotten too far. They're still liberal. Obviously they still hate Trump, all that stuff, but you know, they're also kind of going, okay, well, we still need to make comedy. Like we still need to make people laugh. And like, you know, we're not trying to offend people, but we might offend some people. I've noticed Fahim's comedy has gotten really like kind of edgy almost. I'm like, wow, I'm surprised Fahim would do that. Yeah. I think Fahim is, uh, he's kind of always been a little bit that guy. Um, I, I don't know if there's been a, a change or if just maybe like he's just putting out so much material now because he is so much more popular and he has such a bigger following that he kind of has to feed the beast. 
But I, you know, Fahim's always been like pretty practical and not emotional about like comedy, the business material. I think he really kind of talks about what makes him laugh like personally. Um, and I mean, like he's a, I think a, a, a close, I don't know if he practices, but he's a Muslim Afghan person and Afghani. And, uh, you know, like, I think, I think if, if he can make jokes about all those things, then it's like pretty, pretty safe. Like, you know what I mean? Like, Oh God. Yeah. Did you see a special where it's like the four of them and they're watching the news and they're talking about this, like a uh, murder or it's like a shooting or a black I'm in bomb. that sketch. Are you in that? I'm the roommate that comes out of that room. Yeah. Oh God. That is such a great, when they all cheer that it's, that it's a white guy. Yeah. <laughs> that is like so brilliant. I mean, that's just Fahim. Like he's just funny. Like I don't, and that's what I don't get. It's weird about him because you'd think Hollywood would go like, Oh, like, a Muslim comedian, we got to like, we got to like, uh, give this guy a TV show or something. And it's like, but he told me, he's like, well, there's not enough Muslim people in America for it to make sense. And I'm like, but you're just funny. Like who cares what, you know, your nationality or any of that shit is like, you're fucking hilarious. Like you should have your own show. It's weird. Yeah. I mean, I think he's also like somebody like who I think if he would have arrived on their radar like a couple years later and maybe been a little bit different than he'd be where Rami is right now you know because Rami got the whole show and the movies and the and the and that world right like the HBO specials but I think like Aziz Ansari and like I mean he's Aziz came out of that New York scene of like the mid-2000s he's like a little bit different but um but I, you know, like, I, I really feel like there's like a, a movement right now to like, really like kind of cater to this brown kind of diaspora that's like, you know, Indian, Arab, whatever, you know, that that kind of world. And Fahim is is just so funny. I, I think it's actually like, luckily, it's like showing up in ticket sales, because I think Fahim is getting to do like really cool theaters. And he is the funniest he's one of the funniest people that I've ever seen live. And it's like, it's funny because I know him as a friend and I can still say that, like, you know, usually like when you hang out with somebody enough there, it kind of like dampens your ability to see them on stage differently. Mm-hmm. But Fahim's one of those guys where it's like, just so undeniable. Yeah. He's and got if you ask, yeah. And if you I ask started, anybody, yeah. if you ask Bill Burr or, um, Andrew Santino or even Sebastian, like, you know, all these guys that have seen Fahim. I mean, you know, Rogan, even like they all know that Fahim's like one of the funniest people in the world. So for sure. And he keeps it's crazy because he's gotten better. But even when he was 19, I remember we used to go see him at that comedy club in Bellevue laughs. It was in like a hotel. I didn't even know it existed, but I saw Fahim at giggles once and I asked them, Hey, where's that Fahim guy? And they're like, oh, he performs at this place called Laughs. I was like, there's a comedy club in Bellevue, but I used to go see him. And it was almost like every weekend. And every time he would have new material. I was like, how does he come up with new material? And now he's doing that. I don't know if you follow his YouTube, but he does this Fahim works on stuff bits that are like 10 or 15 minutes. And they're like almost every week and it's new stuff. And it's all really good. I mean, if this is the stuff he's working on, I mean, I can't wait for his next special. It's going to be insane. Yeah, he's he's incredibly talented. I'm, I, I, I wish I didn't like him so much so I could like, you know, <laughs> tell him to fuck off, but he's, he's always been really cool and 
he's just he's like pure like he's not like a he's just a dude that loves comedy and he's super funny and he's he's not like uh show businessy or any of that he just it's just about the jokes and he's so prolific too i mean it takes me like it takes me at least a year to come up with a new hour and uh he could probably come up with a new hour every month realistically seriously is it is it competitive with other comedians when you say like you wish that you hate him cuz i just saw the i don't know if you watched the andrew dice clay episode of joe rogan and he was saying how back in his day like comedians were like really competitive with each other and he said it's not like that now though um i mean I, it's definitely not like publicly competitive there's definitely people that have kind of uh disagreements and you know there's definitely like stuff that you wouldn't see um i think there's certain people that get successful and everybody is not happy for them um but i think generally it's it's kind of we're in such a boom right now that everybody kind of sees one person's success as everybody's success i'm sure that's different for everybody but you know it's like even talking about i i was like um listening to like people talk about matt rife yesterday i was just gonna ask you about him yeah that's funny that you yeah and it's like matt rife is like he's like he's selling more than any other comic combined you know like you could put like you could put a show you could put like bill burr sebastian tom segura uh amy schumer and they aren't all of them combined are probably not selling as much like i think the only person that gets near him is like probably like Ch Chappelle and maybe Sebastian. Um, but it's just insane. Um, and I think, you know, people want to hate on him because he's like pretty and, you know, he's new. He's, you know, hasn't been doing it a ton of time. But at the same time, it's like, I think we've also matured to the point where the people that are going to go to see um, Matt Rife at a stadium are probably not going to be also coming to see me. You know, and I think most people understand that there's some crossover, but I think, you know, there's 360 million people in this country and uh, there's enough there's enough tickets for each audience. Yeah, well, that's what's so interesting to me. Like, I don't I don't know. I, don't, I, don't, I, I sound like a hipster fan here, but like I just there's a lot of the comedians I like, such as yourself and 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 Fahim and, uh, you know, guys like Dan Wilbur and stuff like that, that I just think are like really smart. And I think mm -hmm. maybe sometimes that doesn't translate over to like, you know, like the Jeff Fox, which I love Jeff, Jeff Foxworthy and those kind of, but that's like more like kind of some of it's kind of more dumbed down that like anybody could watch or listen to. Whereas like you guys kind of, you kind of, it's more intelligent, like thinking comedy, I, I feel like. Yeah. I mean, I definitely wish I was dumber. Um, <laughs> that'd be so more, that'd be so much more convenient if I was <laughs> like, do you ever just dumb down jokes though at all? Or like, I mean, I do jokes that I'm not proud of for sure. Um, you know, like I was in Calgary and Calgary's like the Texas of Canada. And it's like, it is really, yeah, I can't talk about, I can't be as open and um, insightful as I want to, but also that's like not my job there. My job is to just make people who bought a ticket have fun. And uh you know, I want, I want them to like all of my shit, but it's just like, they're fucking oil workers and farmers and people that are kind of like working the businesses around that. And they're just from a different place. So they're not going to really like necessarily understand everything 
about New York and fucking, you know, being a, being a quasi gay, <laughs> you know, like a, like a, you know, a effeminate uh, New Yorker who gets his eyebrows trimmed, you know, things like that. <laughs> Do you get your eyebrows trimmed? By my wife. I have to, because it's like just with age, they don't, they just grow like super long. I can't grow facial hair. Like this is maybe shaved on Saturday. I don't know. I don't, I just don't okay. grow facial hair, but my eyebrows will grow to the point where like, they'll be like, so. Didn't you have some story? I don't know if it was on a podcast or in your standup, you talked about somebody shaved your eyebrows like way too much, but you're too scared to speak up against. I was blacked out. I was, Oh no, no, no. That was a joke. Yeah. I was, I, I was think- at a, I was at a Russian barber. Russian, it was like yeah, yeah. a while that I was going to this Russian barber just because he was he was like on my block. So I was just like, fuck it. I'll just go to this guy. He's always open. I don't have to get an appointment. He's like $40 or something like that. It was like, you know, easy. But I was like, hey, can you trim my eyebrows? And he just like, just cut them off. And I was like, <laughs> what the fuck am I supposed to? Like, I, I'm not going to fight him. And you can't really like, what are you supposed to do? I'm also a pussy. So I was just like, I, I still tipped him, even though I was like, so mad. If you watch my my special, The Coward of Gramercy, you can see I have like kind of no eyebrows because of yeah. that Russian. And okay, uh, that's when you were talking about it. Yeah, that's, that was inter- it was interesting. Yeah, I could see it was it did seem like they were they were gone. Yeah, he really he really did a number on that. But when I was blacked out in college one time, I had been like a real problem at this party. I'd been like just bothering everybody and trying to kiss everybody, girls, and uh, just being a complete ass. And um, my friends that were there with me, like kind of like took care of me, but they were so mad at me for being so annoying. They like they shaved one of my eyebrows off like completely and. I, they didn't tell me. I just like, I just got up and went about my day. I was super hungover. I think we went and smoked a bunch of pot because I was so hungover. And then I was just like rubbing my face and I was like, wait, what? And there was just <laughs> no eyebrow there. And then, and then I was like, I cannot, like, I kind of, I could kind of smell the shaving cream and it was like girl shaving cream. And I was like, I cannot believe I, I must have been such an asshole for these girls to want to do something like this to me. And my friends are like cracking up. They're laughing so hard. And I keep on trying to like get out of them. Like what happened? And they're just laughing and laughing. And they're letting me think that these girls did it because I was being such an annoying guest at their party. And um, like, you know, maybe like four hours into that, they were like, we did it. And I was like, all right, good one. You know, you I you get that because I was like causing such a fucking ruckus at the party. I kind of deserved it. Was that so. the moment when you're like, oh, I need, I need to quit booze or what was the moment? I wish like- <laughs> I wish I, uh, I definitely knew I was an alcoholic at that point, but I didn't really know what to do about it. Um, I'd gotten in a lot of trouble. It was like, I'd been kind of a party guy in high school, but I just had fun. There wasn't really like a lot of consequences. And then like, as soon as I graduated, I moved down to Lake Tahoe. I wanted to be a professional skier. And I started getting in trouble down in Tahoe because I was just like, all of a sudden I'm like not in my hometown. I'm in this small town. There's cops don't have as much to do. Um, you know, they're looking for people causing trouble. It's not like a city where you can just be drunk. Um, and I got arrested a couple of times down there. And then I went up to college and I got arrested a couple of times. And I, 
I stopped drinking like my senior year of college didn't get sober, but I stopped drinking because I knew I was having a problem. And then I started dabbling again and I dabbled for like the next, I don't know, six to eight, six to eight years. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the timeline was. And I had a couple nights where I really went in and, you know, did some stupid stuff, but I always knew that I had a drinking problem. So I like really watched it. And then eventually just like one night I'd been at a comedy festival and I didn't do anything that bad, but I just woke up feeling really embarrassed. And I was like, all right, I gotta, I just gotta stop drinking. Like it's, it's just never going to work. And so I stopped drinking for good. Then that was like May, 2010. And, uh, it was good. It was like, you know, a really positive change in my life. But then I started smoking pot and uh, pot, you know, you don't really like wake up after being stoned and you've like, you know, tried to like hook up with your friend's girlfriend or you broke something or got in a fight. It's just like, you're just kind of goofy and you eat too much shit. And I did that for like four years, but it was, you know, you're never going to have the same kind of like wake up calls that you have from, uh, from drinking too much. But you ever, you never got the, uh, like the paranoid stuff when you smoke pot. Oh yeah. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> I had tons yeah, I thought you joked about stuff. that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was definitely paranoid all the time. You know, I thought whole groups of people hated me. I thought, um, you know, the fucking TV was watching me, whatever it was. I did all that stone shit, but I just, I don't know. I lived in LA. It was quasi legal. I was making a lot of money. It was fun. You know, it's like an easy way to date. You know, you'd like meet a girl, you'd ask her if she smoked pot, you'd go smoke a joint. It was kind of an icebreaker. Um, and, uh, but then it just like real stuff started happening kind of around that like carefree lifestyle. Like I got a divorce. I lost a big job. Uh, I don't know what else happened, but I was just like, oh, I don't really like, like I don't really like what I'm doing. And so as a result of that, that's when I fully got sober. So then how do you, what do you do now? Cause I talked to a lot of rock stars. It's like they, they, a lot of them have the same story where they're like, they went through those party years and then now they're so many rock stars are get sober, but what do you do now for just to kind of deal with stress? Like you meditate or do you do anything like or exercise all into comedy? I I kind of do the gauntlet, you know, like I have therapy, I have program 12 step sobriety. I have um, my wife who's also sober, who's also in therapy. And then um, I've been meditating on and off for years, but I'm just about to start like a TM course because I fully want to get into it and like make it regular. But I kind of try to do all this stuff. And um, I actually was like, I was on antidepressants for a long time and they were really helpful, but I'm trying to get off of those because like, I feel like I've been on them for a decade and it was kind of like they ran their course and now it's like, you know, you got to get to the bottom of why you're feeling all the things. Cause I'm, I'm also expecting a baby in uh, September. So oh, congratulations. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited. So it's time to kind of get all of my affairs in order so that I can be a good dad and all that shit. Is this your, wait, is this your first one or second? First? Yeah. First, I haven't okay, uh, never had a kid. Um, second marriage. First baby. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> wow. That's really exciting. You know, if it's a boy or a girl or it's a girl. So I'm going to have to start being like less of a pig. I'm going to have to unfollow all of my, uh, Instagram, butt accounts. Um, <laughs> although I don't really you follow, follow butt accounts. 
I follow uh, boat accounts. <laughs> no, I follow like women swimming in the Mediterranean. There's a lot of but this is so weird too because like Instagram, like they know. So like I'll be oh, on yeah. Instagram and like if you go to the explore tab, there's like all these like sexy girls, and I'm like, uh, just because I'm a guy, a straight guy, like how do they know? They they just figure it out. Like the algorithm. Because I look at the like accounts it. that I watch the video and I'm bored, or I like open the little explore tab. If you look at my explore tab, it's like Arsenal FC boobs and uh, like DIY camping fixes. It's like they know exactly what I want. Camping. I didn't know. Okay. I didn't know that you're into camping then. I do. I like to car camp. I'm not like a super outdoors guy, but I love to like drive out to like New Hampshire or upstate New York, park the car, set up a tent, spend a couple of days next to a lake. Love it. Oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah. I want to get a uh, travel trailer. I've been looking at them online. Like I'm just, I think it'd be, cause you give them for like 15 grand or something. So I feel like it'd be yeah, so I mean, fun to have that. I think you can even get those scamps for like less. You can get those scamps for like eight, eight grand and you can like tow them with a pretty like small car. Like, yeah, I've, I've definitely gone down that rabbit hole. There was a long time that I wanted to get like a converted, uh, sprinter, but they're like, those things are like a hundred grand. And yeah, you know, the sprinters are more than the travel trailers. That's what's so, I mean, it makes sense. Cause that's the whole car too, but yeah, those sprinter vans and they don't have a, you just don't have a bathroom or shower. No. And it's also like, that's a down payment on a house. I can't right. imagine. It's not that fun to like, I, I rented those, those sprinters that are converted and I would not want to live in those things even for like three weeks. Like, they get real no. stinky. They get real, the air gets real stale in there real quick. And there's nowhere to put your shit. Like I went, I went on a ski tour where I did comedy in all these ski towns. And then I skied oh, during the day and then I would smart. like drive. Yeah, it was great. But like that van sucked. There was like my dog, my skis, my ski equipment, my regular clothes. And then like, you know, if you wanted to turn like the kitchen area where you were doing all your laptop work and eating into your bed you had to take everything out oh yeah and it's like you know 15 degrees outside and you're just like that's the last thing you want to do at 9 p.m so no make enough money to just get hotels is my advice for that yeah so because that's what you're doing right now you're touring your road comic yeah i'm doing a fair amount of it it's gonna it's gonna wind down um in September is kind of the end of that for a while. Cause I gotta, I gotta take care of this baby for a couple of months and figure out how to be a dad. So, um, but for now, yeah, I'm going to go to, um, actually tomorrow night, I'm going to do London, Amsterdam, Berlin. I come back to New York for a little bit. And then I do Victoria, Vancouver, Seattle. Um, and then I have a couple more dates around the U S uh, in the rest of the summer, but yeah. Yeah, well, cool. Hopefully you can come to Phoenix at some point. It's good to come here, like either for spring training or if you come in like the winter, it's a good time to get away from the cold weather. Yeah, I would love to come down there in the winter. I, I For the longest time, I've booked gigs in ski resorts during the winter or like yeah. places I can ski. And it's such like, I don't want to be cold anymore. Give me all <laughs> those. Give me all of those like kind of warm winters and uh, I don't care about skiing anymore. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, technically, I think you could ski if you go to like Flagstaff. I think, yeah, I think that's probably, that's like two hours. It's probably not great skiing, but it, it's skiing. I can drive to Taos anyways. Where's that? Taos? Is that Taos is like north of Albert, Albuquerque. It's not like a short drive, but I could put that, you know, tack that on. Colorado. Yeah. Do like a road trip or something. Well, that's exciting. Very cool. Um, Yeah. I mean, do you have any, and you have any uh, 
new specials. I think the Coward of Gram- Gramercy, that's your last special that, that you had, right? Yeah, that's like a about a year and a half old. Um, I'm going to record like a, a kind of experimental special in July, which is like I'm I'm doing it in Seattle. Um, and it's basically when you buy a ticket, you get an email and you can email me what you want me to write a bit about or talk about. And then I have 24 hours. I can open that email account 24 hours before the show. And uh, I have 24 hours to prepare that. And I'm going to record that. And that's going to be the 24 hour special, which is just going to be experimental. And then probably uh, around next winter, I'll record something more formal. What's the, where are you going to record the experimental one? Which, which uh, club? And it's at the, I'm actually doing it the hereafter, which is the small room. It's like a hundred seater at the, uh, the new crocodile in Belltown. Oh, the crocodile. Yeah. I remember that one. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. Like you said it's changed so much in Seattle. Like a lot of the clubs are gone or changed or moved and there's new stuff. And so, yeah, it's weird. I mean, the, the comedy underground finally, um, you know, it, it was like held together by like tape and toothpicks for like years, uh, in belt or in pioneer square, but there was nothing else down there. That was literally the only reason I ever went to pioneer square. And then, um, the club laughs, uh, merged with giggles. So they're up in, um, they're up in the U district. And then there's a club, there's two clubs on Capitol Hill, um, which are kind of more casual showcasey kind of clubs. They're not like, and they're definitely like more, leaning towards local acts and a little bit more um i mean i wouldn't say woke because that kind of sounds like this blanket uh statement but you know it's it's definitely alt it's definitely like more inclusive um but seattle's so different in general i mean it's like you know it's one of those places that's really been transformed by the tech industry yeah i know it's it's weird like you go to seahawks games and the, the crowd has changed Cause I remember when I first started going to Seahawks games, it was like very like just blue collar, regular guys. And now you see these, it's kind of like the wine and cheese crowd is like all these tech guys are going that probably weren't even really fans of the Seahawks. But like, oh, I, I can afford these tickets. Like, I'll, I'll buy it. And, uh, yeah. That's what I, that's what I said. I like, cause I kind of grew up, I grew up in Queen Anne, which is like kind of, yeah. uh, you know, pretty nice neighborhood. And my mom was a nurse. My dad was like a corporate kind of guy. Um, but I didn't hear about the Seahawks. Like I heard about, Steve Largent and Brian Bosworth when I was a kid, you know, like yeah. those were like two things I remember. And then I swear to God, I didn't think about the Seahawks again until 2006 playoff runs with Sean Alexander and Matt Hasselbeck. And it was like, then I was kind of like, oh yeah, the Seahawks, like they're, oh, they're pretty good. <laughs> like maybe I'll support the Seahawks. I'd never really like, I'd always been a soccer fan. So I'd always watch oh, soccer. Okay. And, um, and then it was just like, all of a sudden, everybody in Seattle loved the Seahawks. And I was like, none of us cared about this. The, this used The Seahawks used to be like exclusively Boeing employees. Like that was like the only people at those games was like Boeing, Blue Work, Blue Collar, you know, Tacoma, Burien, Outskirts. I didn't know anybody. That, and now it's like, you know, Amazon employees are like buying boxes and things like that. So are you a Sounders fan then? Um. Not really. I don't really like American soccer. I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a, I think I'd be called a hater amongst American soccer fans, but I've just been so spoiled by always being into European soccer and the quality so good that it's been hard to get interested in American soccer. It'd be like being a, you know, a baseball fan 
and then like somebody's like well why don't you watch more minor league baseball and you're like because uh, well, it's not as good right you know, like but i want to support them i you know i i think that they definitely are on the right track the one thing that's really like kind of uh absurd to me is in all other leagues of football if you lose your league you get demoted to another league there's promotion and relegation Hmm. And America doesn't have that because none of the people that invest in MLS teams would risk being demoted to a lower league. And so it's, it's kind of this weird, it's like a little bit bowling with the bumpers up where like, you know, cause like inter Miami or whatever that club is that just bought Messi, they're last place. They're the very last place. And, you know, they should be in the USL or whatever. But because our relegation system works like this, they can like buy Messi, and then now they'll probably like be pretty, pretty good, you know. Well, yeah. What is the thing? Somebody was telling me I don't follow soccer, but this guy was telling me that the Saudis bought this team, like they bought one of the the European teams, I think, and they just like made it like totally stacked. So is it kind of like? Well, every big European team is owned by some evil conglomerate of business or country. It's like there's there's like almost zero innocence left in the ownership of football, which is it's it's unfortunate. But, you know, it is what it is. But the Saudis bought Newcastle and then, um, you know, there's like some other ones that Manchester City is owned, I think, by Qataris or Bahrainis, like the royal family kind of thing. And then. um the uh PSG is owned by another like all those teams are owned kind of by like big conglomerations and um yeah the Saudis what they did recently is they've just been pumping millions of dollars into their home league so Cristiano Ronaldo is playing in um in in, in a Saudi team now and um I mean I, I think they gave him a billion dollars so it's like you can't blame him um Crazy. and then like Kareem Benzema, who won the uh, Ballon d'Or this year, he's playing in Saudi Arabia. Um, Nicholas Mendy, I think, or Benjamin Mendy, one of the Mendy brothers just signed for another team. But they just have so much money. I mean, like money's so ridiculous in Saudi terms that they're really just trying to, they're trying to do what we did with Messi, which is like buy the best player to draw the attention. But they're trying to do it across the league. They're basically playing FIFA in real life where they're just like, money is not a factor and they're just like putting together teams because they can you know they could just offer but it's not it's not gonna really it's gonna be entertaining for them but i don't think you're ever gonna see like a big population of international viewers watching the saudi league yeah i saw i can't remember it might have been you or was somebody a stand-up was talking about that how what if the saudis bought like nascar (laughs) pissed off all the nascar fans i was like that was kind of a funny bit just about it wasn't me, but I could, everything. I could see them doing it. I mean, it's I'm I'm really surprised that like they haven't tried to assassinate Elon Musk because if their oil, you know, if their oil goes away, I don't know what the hell they're going to sell because there's not a lot of stuff coming out of the sand. Um, yeah, well, oil will still oh, even without the cars. I feel like it's still valuable because it's used to heat houses and all the other things. Yeah, they'll they, figure out something. Yeah, know, I'm sure they have. They they killed a guy in Turkey and chopped him up and got away with it completely. You know. Oh, uh, is that that reporter guy or whatever? Yeah, yeah. That was creepy. Yeah, that's scary stuff. Yeah, they don't fuck around. That's not a that's not like a uh, accountable government. I don't think there's any like uh, special commissions on human rights happening in in the <laughs> Saudi government. 
Right. But they're also doing crazy shit. Like one of the Saudi royal family is building like an entire city in the desert that's going to be like um, basically like a utopian green space. It's going to be like an entire city. I think it's called Noom or Neom. And it's like literally like it's like an entire metropolitan that they're building from scratch. And they're just going to like it's going to have like, you know, like enclosed biosphere kind of places and like you know you can get in on the ground level you know you can go pay two million dollars and become a citizen at noon and i think you know, i've heard of is this like these 15 minute cities have you heard of those i think it's a no but that idea. that makes sense yeah yeah they'll be in a dome and that i don't know some of it seems cool but maybe also scary so i don't know it's like it seems like they're like just like ignoring the fact that climate change is happening they're like instead of lowering our carbon let's just uh let's just build cities you know underground <laughs> and protect yeah protect it that way i guess i don't know <laughs> it's interesting yeah i mean it it definitely makes you able to sell oil still so <laughs> yeah i i don't know if that like you said like they'll think of something to, a way to sell it for sure forever i'm sure that that'll be popular unless they Do really have I was going to say, do you have a favorite, uh, when I come to Phoenix, what's the best taco slash Mexican food I should go to? Oh, that's funny. That, like, have you ever seen Dan Wilbur's? He did like a tweet. It was so funny about like how he went on a website for this Mexican food place. And it, it said like URL is broken. And then he goes in and it's like, it's served in like a paper bag. And he's like, oh, this is going to be the best food ever. And uh, yeah, yeah, there's a place there. It's called, uh, it's right down the street from my house. They have the best Al Pastor tacos. It's called Super Burrito. It's got a okay. drive-through. I think it used to be probably used to be like a Wendy's or something. But oh my god, we we probably go there like once a week. It's so good. But there's a bunch of them. Yeah, it's funny because I'm like I'm pretty healthy. Like I'll like you know I'll always like opt for. Oh, the yeah, are you dairy. vegan? Aren't you vegan? I'm not vegan, but no. I'll like opt for the dairy-free alternative. Okay. I eat fish, okay. but like I don't want your like I don't want my Mexican food to be healthy. I want it to be like, I want the beans to have lard right. in it. I want them to have chopped up my vegetables on the same cutting board as the raw pork, you know, like <laughs> I, I just yeah. want, I, I just want a heart attack in a bowl, basically. Like uh -huh. I, I'm, I'm uh that's like kind of my, my one thing that I'll go out of my way for to like, I remember one time I was, I was driving to Denver from LA for some reason I had decided like oh i'll just rent a car and i'll drive i'll like you know do like a one-way rental and um but i like purposely went like six hours out of my way so that i could go through santa fe and have this like christmas style enchilada do you know what christmas style is no it's like where they put the red and red the green, and green sauce, sauce on it okay yeah. yeah that makes sense yeah and um it was worth it i mean i was like i was basically running on fumes and kind of delirious but in my memory I can remember being like, this was worth it. Yeah. There's a place too here called the, I think it's called the Carlsbad Cavern or Tavern. And it's, uh, it's supposed to be like New Mexican food. And I think they have a lot of that same stuff. It's really spicy. So that's, a, there's so many good restaurants here. Yeah. I can hook you up. I'm sure. all in. I'll come down and I'll, I'll watch a, I'll watch a, a Suns game. And, uh, I was actually like a huge Suns fan in 2000. Oh, really? Yeah. 2007. I kind of just worked my, like, I was a Sonics fan and then I was a Trailblazers fan and then I was a Sacramento Kings fan and then my baseball fan or my basketball fandom kind of ended with the Suns uh circa 2000 I want to say 
six, seven, like Steve Nash, uh, Mar- Sean Marion, uh, Barbosa, Diao. Trying to think who else was on that. Stoudemire? It was like Amari Stoudemire. Yeah. It was like my favorite basketball team. Oh, yeah. I, I, I became kind of a Suns fan. I, I became an NBA fan. And uh, I became even more of a baseball baseball fan, too, and a little bit of a hockey fan just because we have those betting apps here. I don't know if you have those in New York yet. We but, do. Yeah, that's a new oh addition. My God. This is you want a new addiction to instead of like, you know, if you, you're you not drinking anymore, you're not doing weed, start doing the betting apps. Oh, my God, it's so fucking fun. But I only bet like usually 10 or 20 dollars. But it makes it the game a lot more interesting when you bet on stuff and you can bet like long bets, like you can bet the exact score and you can win like thousands of dollars. It's fun. It's a lot of fun. So I'm I'm uh terrified to get into betting. I I've uh I've been able to dodge the gambling addiction. I I could get addicted to like anything. I mean, I like if 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 sometimes when I stand up, I get a head rush and I sit back down so I can do it again. Like I'm just a <laughs> I'm just, I'm an addictive personality, but I do gamble occasionally. Like, uh, every time I go to like a casino, I play blackjack. So I would love, I would love to get into something like that. Yeah. I think to me, it's like, I had a friend the same way. He felt the same way. He's like, Oh, I don't want to do those sports apps. I'll get addicted. I was like, no, I don't think you, I don't think, I don't know sports. It's like, cause you can bet $10 and then that last three hours, it's not like, like blackjack, you lose $10 in five seconds. So one hand. Yeah. That- and then you yeah, that definitely would be fun to watch the games with with a little bit more uh, on on the line. I think that could add a little bit. And if there was a way that I could just keep it to like ten, twenty dollars, I'm fine with that. Yeah, but, well, and that's uh, what's what's cool about the apps is they'll give you these bonuses, but the bonuses usually have a ten or twenty dollar limit. So then that that always keeps me in line. I'm like, okay, well, I want to get the bonus, so I'll bet this, but it's only ten bucks. So I'm like, yeah, it's not bad. So yeah, it makes you yeah. more interested in the games for sure. Just as long as I don't spend my daughter's baby food money, we're we're all good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be bad. Well, cool. So thank, thanks so much for doing this. I always end promoting a, a charity. Is there a charity that you uh, is near and dear to your heart or something you want to promote here at the end? Um, yeah, I mean, I, there's a lot of charities, but um, uh, the uh, American Indian College, uh, I think it's the College Foundation, whatever that is, the American Indian College Fund. I, I I would have to Google the exact wording of it, but that would be that's one that I always donate to. So is that like for Native Americans? You mean or yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Because don't they already get free college just from the government? Or yeah, but I think this kind of like lines them up. It it sets them up with a little bit more. I think the um the foundation does a little bit more of like getting people from like going in and going. Do you want to go to college? Here's how you go to college. Don't worry, it's free. Let me help you with your application. Let me help you get prepared for the SATs. Let me help you get prepared for financial aid and things like that. So oh, okay, yeah, because we used to I used to work in the schools and uh, we'd have a uh, we had a Native American like coordinator. I forget the exact term, but yeah, that's what she did. And I met with some of these families, and it's like it's just heartbreaking. And then I mean, I've driven around the state, and there's a lot of reservations here, and you see like there's some that um, reservations. I'm in Scottsdale. It's like literally like across just a couple of few miles from here and you see like how they live. And it's like, it's just so heartbreaking because they just don't, it's like, they don't have this. They're like the depressed as a, as a, as a whole, like the community is just like, like everybody, they just, there's not this like ambition that, Hey, let's go out and live life and follow our dreams. It's kind of just like, eh, whatever. Yeah. I think that that's like, um, you know, I think there's a lot of systemic poverty and I think that there's a lot of, uh, you know, it's just, uh, 
a culture was kind of decimated and um yeah. with that comes this like you know kind of uh you lose your compass but i think there's a lot of positive things happening it's just like the reservations are are the most neglected part of the united states and you'll also see like you'll see abject poverty which you would think that you know there there was reports a couple of years ago on the um navajo reservation in arizona of people starving to death and so it's like it's just something that i think we kind of like brush under the rug and definitely it's uh it's also like a hard thing because there's definitely like a lot of people that like um <laughs> this is like such a lame way for a comedian to get off i'm just i should just be like making a gay joke or like a fart joke but uh <laughs> this is like probably why i'm not more successful because i keep on talking about sad things um <laughs> That's what but I mean. yeah yeah just That's donate the to stuff. them and uh they're doing great you know they're gonna they're gonna they're taking care of themselves they'll be fine yeah it is just interesting because it's like yeah there's all these movements and I'm like, I'm surprised that no one has been like Native American lives matter. Cause I mean, they, yeah, they're so neglected. It's like, I don't know. I, I don't know what the solution is. I mean, I have some ideas, but I feel like somebody needs to, to shake. Well, it's, a, it's also like, it's like, it's that hard thing where it's like people need to have their own kind of like authority, like over themselves. And so you run into that thing where it's like, you're like, oh man, this is horrible, but it's like, it's not my place to fix it. So my wife just walked out the door. Oh, okay. She left me. Um, <laughs> All right. Get those child support payments ready then. <laughs> yeah. I'll try to work out my uh, divorce papers right now. Uh, thanks so much for having me on, yeah. man. I really, really appreciate it. you uh, navigating my annoying schedule. Yeah, no, was, that's awesome. That I'm happy that you had all these opportunities. So very cool. All right. Well, thanks, Chuck. Thanks. I'll, t- I'll see you later. Let me know when you're in uh, Scottsdale again. And will you post all this? Like, uh, you'll post like tweets or Instagram. Yeah, I'll tag you and everything. Yeah, probably like next, uh, probably like Monday, maybe. Or maybe. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. Awesome. Later. Thanks, man. All See right. Bye, bye. Andy Haynes, very funny guy. Check out his website and follow him on social media for more info. Uh, his current special, "The Coward of Gramercy," is out now and it's free on YouTube. And of course, as always, liking, sharing, and commenting on social media and YouTube for the guest and for this episode can help us both out. I appreciate all your support for my guests and the show. Have a great rest of your day. Shoot for the moon.